Turn with me this morning in the Word of God. Acts 18. Acts 18, our text for examination will be verse 23 to verse 28. Will you stand now of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? Acts 18, beginning of verse 23. These are God's words. Having spent some time there, he left, passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him aside and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. And when he went to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. You may be seated. As you think your way through the details of our text this morning, I trust you'll be able to see that there is one significant way you can approach this text, and that's through people. Or I might say through proper nouns. Not too difficult for us to see that the portion that we just read is dominated by three sets of characters. Paul, Apollos, and Priscilla and Aquila. And I suppose this morning, if, if you approach this text in order to draw out its significance through those three particular sets of figures, you'd find something interesting. After all, you have Paul traipsing around the Syrian countryside with a strange haircut. You have this mysterious man named Apollos. And then you have um, Priscilla and Aquila, humble, ordinary, tent-making peoples who love Jesus Christ and love to serve His church. Lots of interesting storylines here. How about the fact that this guy named Apollos, knowing nothing more than the baptism of John the Baptist, is parachuted out of the sky and lands in Ephesus to preach in the synagogue, and he's this man with mysterious abilities and powers and capabilities who can speak with spellbinding authority so that everyone sits and listens. And then on the other hand, you have this very odd and extraordinary situation where this husband and wife couple, humble, ordinary tent makers, who have calluses on their hands, take aside this book-learning wonder called the palace and teach him more accurately the way of God. Fascinating storylines. For that reason, uh, often people approach this text to draw its significance through the nouns, the people, the Priscilla and Quillas and Apollos. But I would have you this morning think about our text and reach into its significance and, and draw it across the centuries into our lives this morning by focusing on the verbs. And there are powerful verbs here in our text this morning. We have strengthening, we have teaching, and we have helping. 
You see, when you begin to take up this text and zero in on the verbs rather than the nouns, what you begin to see is Christ. What you begin to see is Christ when you look at the verbs. No longer is the message of our text people. The message of our text becomes Jesus Christ and what's He doing in His church. And you see, one thing that helps us pull those pieces together is to go back and remind ourselves what Luke said in the very first verse of this great book, that it is about what Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, the entire book of Acts, inaptly named as Acts of the Apostles, is really the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did through His Apostles. When you begin to think about that and you plug that perspective in our text through the verbs, what you begin to see is that this text is about the spiritual care of Christ for His church. And the interesting thing is we learn that lesson through the medium of a snapshot of an ordinary day of life in the church. I think you can agree with me here this morning, having read these verses, we have a lull in the action. What you get treated to in verse 23 to 28 is what's happening in the life of the church in Antioch and Galatia and Phrygia. In another snapshot, you get treated to an ordinary day in the life of the church in Ephesus. And on the back end of your text, you get treated to another snapshot of what's going on in Corinth. And if you were to put those things out upon a map, you would realize that the stretch is well over 2,000 miles. Multiple site locations of the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, as you stop and think about in each of those places, you have testimony to the regular ministry of the word there. But what you don't have is testimony about the forward advance of the kingdom of God. And that's interesting to us to think about this morning, because ever since Acts chapter 8, that's precisely what has been going on in the book of Acts. From the time that the believing Jews were cast out of Jerusalem to the persecution of Stephen, Acts 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, all the way up to chapter 18 is the narrative of the relentless progression of the kingdom of God. Come into this text, it feels like a lull. No new ground is being broken. No testimony of converts won. Instead, what you get is a snapshot of what's ordinary. And what's ordinary is what Jesus Christ is doing in His church. Strengthening, teaching, and helping. And what you have then is a model for what the church is supposed to be. A place where Jesus Christ ministers to the spiritual needs of His saints, through the ordinary ministry of the means of the Word of God. That's what we want to think about here this morning as we take up our text. We break it into three parts. Strength for Galatia, teaching for Ephesus, and help for Corinth. So let's think first of all of strength for Galatia. And the beginning of that story of strength for Galatia is noting that Paul is initiating his third missionary journey, but not quite pushing forward into it. You'll notice here in your text in verse 23 that as our text begins, as the picture emerges, Paul is spending time 
in Antioch. It says, having spent time there. You know it's Antioch because verse 22 tells you that Paul had went down to Antioch. Why is Paul in Antioch? Well, Paul is in Antioch because it's the church, as you remember, where he launched all of his missions from. All the great missionary journeys of the New Testament are launched from Antioch, at least the missionary journeys to the Gentiles. And what seems to have been Paul's practice was, at the end of each one, to go back and to report all of the great things that God had done. And why would he do that? And the reason is probably at least bound up in this, is because every single time Paul launches those journeys, you see the church praying with and for and over Paul. And so it would be natural for him to come back and to tell the people of God how God had been answering their prayers. And if we just thought about this particular missionary journey, we could discern that this must have been a powerful and stimulating and electrifying message and report to them about what God had done through their simple prayers. Uh, Paul could tell them about the hand of divine providence and oversight over him as he was led mysteriously to Ante- or rather to Troas to receive this very strange Macedonian vision which kicked off the leg of missions and ministry on Europe which went through Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And then how he received another very strange and uplifting vision from the Lord Jesus Christ in Corinth by which he was exhorted and moved to persevere in mission such that after a year and a half of ministry, you have a multiplying, thriving set of churches in Corinth and the heart of the Gentile Greek-speaking world. It must have been an electrifying report. But at some point, Paul gets the itch for mission. So you can see here in verse 23 that after he spent some time there, he left and he passed successively through Galatia. And here what should be obvious to us is that Paul was working his way through the churches which he had planted on his first missionary journey. He was going back to some of those places which you'll remember, Pisidia and Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, places he'd already been to, churches he'd already founded. But I want you to notice what he's doing. He's He's not engaging now in the work of missions. He's engaging in the work of ministry. And that work of ministry is summarized in this great and powerful word, strengthening. Now remember, the main idea that we're pursuing as we thread together uh, this uh, set of beads, as it were, our verses which span from uh, Syria and Antioch all the way over uh, to Corinth, is we're trying to collect all of this together and say, what holds it together? What is it about this picture that Luke gives you, which forms not just a collage of images, but tells a story? We said, let's focus on the verbs. And here's your first verb. And the verb is strengthen. I want to tell you this morning, people of God, this is a powerful verb. It was used in Greek outside of the Bible to speak of what you think of when you think of strengthen or fixing. The Greeks would have said that the mountains were fixed upon the earth. Here's an interesting use you probably never thought of. They use this word to talk about a hump. A hump is fixed on a camel's back. It's fixed. Or rainbows are fixed in the clouds. 
And due to the force and strength of this term, sometimes it was used to speak of personal fortitude. But as uh, this word gets picked up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it begins to pick up moral and spiritual ideas. It begins to be used to speak of the ordinances of God or of Zion being fixed on the hill and spiritual qualities. But the person who really developed the meaning of this term and is responsible for how it's used in the New Testament, or at least the, the sense that he developed in his writing that is found in the New Testament, is a Jewish philosopher named Philo. I don't care if you remember his name, but I do care if you remember what he did. He began to use this term to develop spiritual or moral categories. And he would use this term to describe people who seemed to have no fixed moral principles, who seemed to be people who developed their morality and spirituality each new day, who had nothing abiding to cling to. And so he described those kinds of people in terms of their spiritual or moral quality as leaves who had nothing firm to establish them. He used it in other portions of his writing to describe the kind of person that could endure as a stalwart soldier for the Lord in the midst of life's difficulties. He said they were fixed. They were people who were strengthened. They were people who had resolve. Now, to you that may not mean a lot, until you begin to take that word and you, you bring it into the very words of Christ. I wonder if you remember that, that scene in Luke 22. It's the last night of our Savior on earth before He goes to the cross. He has His disciples uh, assembled around Him. And He tells them He's about to be betrayed. And as classic, Big Mouth Peter says, Lord, I'll never ever betray you. I swear. I pinky swear. I promise. Never happen. And, and Jesus said to Peter, Peter, if you only knew what you're saying, you're going to deny me three times tonight. You're going to betray me tonight. You are going to pretend you've never even heard the name Jesus tonight. But do you know what Christ said after that? He said, Peter, when you are restored, when you come back from your betrayal, here's what I want from you. You go and you strengthen the brethren. Now you get a flavor for this term uh, in, in terms of its, a, its ability to describe moral and spiritual states. The very sheep who, the Word of God said, were, were scattered because of the apostasy of people like Peter, were to be drawn back into the fold and shepherded and comforted and cared for and made strong to endure the difficulties of life through this commission of Christ to Peter to strengthen them. Now you see it's an important term. Now it shouldn't surprise you that you come across this term quite often. In, for instance, the book of Acts, Acts 14.22, at the end of the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas 
Luke says, went through all the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice the coloration here in which this word emerges. It's fortitude, it's strength, it's support, it's vigor, it's boldness in the face of hardship. And they went on strengthening them. Acts 15.32, Luke describes Judas and Silas leading men from Jerusalem, going down to the church of Antioch, which had been ravaged by false teachers and false doctrine and torn, uh, uh, torn down inside out every which way possible over false doctrine. And these brothers went down there and the Word of God said they strengthened them with a lengthy message. They made them full of fortitude. It's no surprise then the Apostle Paul seems to love this word. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 3.2 We sent Timothy, our brother, to strengthen you. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 This is a prayer. May God establish your hearts without blame. 2 Thessalonians 2.17 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen your hearts. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 But the Lord is faithful who will strengthen you. In the beginning of the book of Romans, he, he tells the, the church there at Rome that he, he longs to come to them, that he might impart some spiritual gift to them, that he may strengthen them. At the end of the book of Romans, as a sort of bookend around the entire letter, in Romans 16.25, he prays for the saints that God may strengthen them. Do you get the picture of this being an important pastoral term? And so when you come across this language in your text this morning, people of God, I know it feels like a, an economy of words, and it truly is, but it tells a story of many words. Because when you hear that the Apostle Paul was going there to strengthen them, you begin to discern the reason why he is there, is to bring the Word of God to them, to preach, to minister to them, so that something would happen, they would be changed. And you say, well, where do you get, uh, preacher, the word, ministry of the word here? It just says he was strengthening them. And let's see this. Uh, out of all the uses we can find in Paul, we find two uh, different ways besides the ministry of the word that he strengthened people. He, he would pray for people that they would be strengthened by the Lord. And he said he might impart a spiritual gift to them, they may be strengthened. But ask yourself, why in the world would Paul go to Galatia and Phrygia to strengthen them with prayer if he could have done that in Antioch? If all this is about praying for them to gain strength, why not do that? If this is about imparting a spiritual gift to them, why didn't he already do it on the previous three visits through there? Why do you wait till now? You see, the answer seems to be obvious, and Matthew Henry nails it here. He said he preached to them that he might strengthen them to confirm their faith in Christ and their resolutions for Christ and their pious affections for Christ. See that? That grasps hold of the significance here. The Apostle Paul goes to these churches and he goes for an intent purpose, which is that he might minister the Word to them, that he might strengthen their affections and their resolve and their resolutions for Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this morning, people of God, how that happens through the preaching of the Word. 
And that got me thinking about this this morning and begin to consider what this uh, simple, humble, plain text means for us this morning. First of all, it teaches us something about the purpose and the intention of the church of Jesus Christ. One of the great purposes of the church of Jesus Christ is to be a word and sacrament institution, to be a place where the word of God is proclaimed. The church of Jesus Christ has a very simple, humble, ordinary calling to be a preaching station, to be a place where the Word of God is expounded. Yes, it must be a missionary institution, but on an ordinary day in the life of the church, this is what it's called to be, a place where the Word of God is proclaimed, and the reason is because of our need That's the other thing this text tells us about them. This text tells you what you need this morning. And I wonder if you even knew it. This takes uh, uh, some time to to come into sharp focus in our thinking, I suppose. But, But what we really need is this regular strengthening by the preaching of the Word of God. And I can prove that to you because the Apostle Peter says it to the church. He says it to a young church of believers, to those who are scattered through Bithynia and Cappadocia and all over the hillsides and countrysides of what is called Asia. Then he says to them, here's what your first order of business is. To long for the pure milk of the Word of God. But you know, he puts a qualifier in front of it. He says, as newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word that you may grow. You see, our text this morning, as it speaks about this strengthening, speaks about our need. You know, the wonder of being a believer is it's something that happens from above. We don't, we don't cause ourselves to be born again. You can tell people uh, stories of the Bible and about Jesus all day long, but that doesn't change them. The thing that changes somebody to bring them out of a place of of darkness and disobedience and sin and opposition to Christ is regeneration by the Spirit. It's It's a sovereign work. And that's why the Bible calls it replacing a heart of stone and giving it a heart of flesh. This is why it's called the new birth or the rebirth or regeneration. It's a sovereign act. But you see, when, when God plants that new nature, that new heart within us, the thing that it needs is to be shaped, to grow, to mature, to be made stable, to be spiritually nourished. And Peter says that comes through longing for and feeding upon the Word of God. When you hear this morning, people of God, what feels ho-hum in the description of Luke here, in the ordinary snapshot of a day in the life of the church that Paul was strengthening it, what you're discerning that is that Paul was ministering the Word to care for the souls of the saints that they may be strengthened, that they may be made firm in character, that they may be convinced in faith, they may be established in life, solidified in their relationships, steady in their emotions, fortified to endure. This is what you need from the Word of God, people, of the Lord this morning. We don't necessarily need new facts, new doctrines. We need to be fortified 
We need to be made strong and firm and to be established in our faith. And the good news is this morning that from this testimony of Paul, we can see that this is what Jesus Christ is continuing to do for His disciples. He's providing a means for them to be fortified and strengthened, and that's the ministry of the Word of God. So we see strength for Ephesus. Now we see teaching, or rather we see uh, strengthening for Galatia. Now we see teaching for Ephesus. And before we uh, encounter these verses, I just would remind us this morning uh, uh, of a scene change. Uh, We've leapfrogged geographically over 1,500 miles of territory, really. We've come a long ways from the beginning of verse 23 that Paul was in Antioch to to come to Ephesus. We have a significant uh, location change here. The other thing that I think is important for us to consider is the timing of this snapshot. It, It occurs somewhere between that time when Paul set sail from Ephesus to go to Syria and when he returned later on, which is well over a year. And what you might remember is that Paul had barely enough time to walk into the synagogue in Ephesus and preach Christ to them before he said goodbye. You see that back in verses 19 and 20, how he went in and he reasoned and he preached and it was so good that they begged him to stay and he said, I can't. So imagine maybe you were just converted on that day. Imagine you had just heard about Jesus. You never knew about Jesus being the Christ. And this apostle comes in and he expounds the word and unfolds the word and you get saved. And now he says goodbye. What is a seedling church to do in those circumstances? Well, what it does is received this gift from Christ. And that brings us now into the heart of this portion of the picture that Luke gives us, which is teaching in Ephesus through this man named Apollos. And there's a lot of interesting details about him this morning I would have you consider, but there's three main parts to it as we consider, first of all, this teacher who was sent by Christ. He uh, was a culturally sophisticated man. He was a spiritually devout man. And he was academically accomplished. So let's think about those parts of who this man was. And first of all, we think culturally, and you see the introduction to culture here in verse 24, he was a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and was mighty in the Scriptures. That's enough to begin. He was a Jew. Which means that um, although he lived in Egypt, which is where Alexandria was located, his parents were Jewish. And he had been brought up to faith. He had been circumcised in the eighth day according to the Scriptures. Uh, He had been catechized in the faith from the time he was a child. He probably grew up in the synagogue or next to the synagogue, uh, considering that he was so steeped in the Word of God. But he was a Jew, but there's something more significant perhaps about him, is he was Alexandrian. And the reason for its significance we'll see in a moment. But you know, Alexandria was a was a center of cultural sophistication. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. But what made it significant was this huge building downtown surrounded by a bunch of shade trees called the Alexandrian Library. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. 
before it burnt down somehow by providence a couple of centuries later, it was regarded to have contained the, the, uh, the text of antiquity going back to the beginning of time. Imagine all of the information that was lost when that library burnt down. Over 400,000 volumes. And because of that situation of the library there, it was known then to be a city of great intellectual sophistication. A center of great learning. A center of philosophers and university students and We're not surprised then that as soon as we hear about his culture, we learn this about Apollos. He was an eloquent man. He was an eloquent man. And that could either be that he was somebody who could speak with power, or it meant that he was educated, highly educated. I think both of them go together here. Because obviously he can speak with power, as you see in verses 25 and 26, particularly verse 26, he began to speak out boldly. One of the accents that we pick up in the ministry of this Apollos is his intellectual, but also his power of eloquence. But it should not be confused with just the gift of gab. He was a person of eloquence because he was a person of letters. And so the spotlight here then is on his academic credentials. He was a well-trained, highly educated person, and he could express that verbally. But the real issue with Apollos is what unfolds next in his spiritual qualification. And there's three sets of qualifications here. As soon as you learn that he was an eloquent man, you learn spiritually about him. He was a man who was mighty in the Scriptures. Think about that as a way to describe somebody. Mighty in the Scriptures. Think about the thing he was mighty in, the Scriptures. The sense here is that he had a reservoir, a vast reservoir of knowledge about the Word of God. He was intimately familiar with the Word. He had memorized the Word. His mind was full of the Word. He could cite the Word chapter and verse. He was familiar with its promises and prophecies and law statutes and its history. He knew the Word of God in granular detail. And that's what makes it mighty. He had a tremendous, vast knowledge of the Word. But I think something else is implied here more than just a mastery of the material content of the work. It seems to me that a portion of his being mighty in the Word of God was his reverence for the Word of God. You see, it's one thing to listen to a pointy-headed academic intellectual drone on and on about the Word and doctrine and the Bible, and it's an entirely different thing to listen to somebody whose soul is absorbed in the Word, who is somebody that takes all of the powers of their intellect to approach the Word of God to discern how their life is found in Christ in the Word. And that's this man. He was somebody who looked to the Word with anticipation and with expectation because he believed that the Word of God was the food for his soul. And so he was a man who was mighty in the Word because he had a voracious appetite for its ability to quicken and to revive. We also learn here about his spiritual knowledge. We're told that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. And I wonder if anybody this morning has in their translation catechized, because this is the verb for catechism. 
He is somebody that had been instructed in a detailed and systematic manner in the things of the Lord his whole life. He grew up just like you did if you grew up in the Reformed Church. He grew up just like your children are if you're training them in the Lord like you said you would at their baptism. Which is all that time from uh, as long as they can sit on mama's knee and, and your knee if you're a daddy. You're talking to them about the Lord. You're, you're speaking to them uh, using the language of the catechism and reading the scriptures and singing the psalms to them. That was this man. He had this incredible spiritual heritage of being catechized in the way of the Lord. And when you hear this idea of way of the Lord, it must include teaching about Jesus Christ. It must include teaching about Jesus Christ. And so he has this vast uh, education in not only the Scripture, but in sound doctrine. And now I think you come across what is probably the capstone of it all when you read that he was fervent. In spirit. He was fervent in spirit. When you hear that word fervent, you might think of a teapot boiling on the stove. Because literally that is what the verb means. Boiling. Boiling. And as you can imagine, it became a a term that was well-suited for figurative use to describe somebody who seemed to be on fire, who had uh, their emotions and their thoughts bubbling up, welling up from within them and flowing out. That is Apollos, fervent in the Spirit. And I hope you have a capital S because this is not about what comes from within Apollos. It's about what came from outside of Apollos, the Spirit of God. He was full of the Spirit of God. He was full of fire and light. He was full of truth and power. This is a man who was, in every measure, a man well-suited for the ministry of the Word of God. And so we're not surprised that the next thing we learn about him is he was teaching. Look at verse 26. You're told, and he began speaking out boldly in the synagogue. You can also see the testimony to his teaching in verse 25. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. So this entire build-up and introduction to Apollos is designed to help you this morning think about not just the man, but what he was he doing. He had gathered among the people who wanted to hear the Word of God expounded, and he taught them, and notice it says here, he taught them accurately the things about Jesus. What would that be? Well, we're going to learn in a moment that he didn't know anything more than the baptism of John, so it's a limitation. But what did John the Baptist know about Jesus? Do you remember... uh, there's this discussion, and it's kind of a, oh, it's, it's an interesting, if not humorous, discussion that, that John's out there busy baptizing uh, somewhere in the border of the Jordan River by the wilderness, and here come these pesky Pharisees. 
And it's recorded for you in John chapter 1. And they're, they're uh, stroking their beards and pondering and seeing all that's going on. And they know it's something interesting, something they should be curious and concerned about. They look at the man. Uh, he's dressed like a, like a lunatic. He's got a camel hair shirt on and a leather girdle around his waist. And he just seems so full of zeal. And he's crying out in the wilderness that that people need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And everything about him feels apocalyptic. And so they say, "Uh, are you Elijah? They go down the list of Old Testament prophets and say, who in the world are you? He looked like an alien. And in the midst of that, the Word of God tells us there's this discussion going back and forth. And John said, I'm, I'm here to prepare the, the way for the one who is coming. He's standing right now in your midst. And the next day after this conversation uh, emerges, one of the things that you read in the Word of God is that John the Baptist walks right by his cousin, who was Jesus. And he cried out, not cousin, what's up? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When you hear this morning, people of God, after you receive this elaborate introduction to this man named Apollos with all of his spiritual qualities, academic credentials, his cultural identification, and then you hear that he was, uh, he was preaching and teaching accurately the things of Jesus, one of the things you're to discern is this man was a missionary for Christ. He was preaching the same message and substance that at least John did, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. He is the Lamb of God. And so he must have did what John did, which was call people to repentance. He must have told these Jews with all of their self-righteousness and their smugness and their circumcision, their Jewish credentials, that none of it's enough. He might have even been able to say to them, if any of that stuff mattered, then I'm at the top of the list in front of you. It's all nothing. Your sins are like crimson. You need Christ. He preached to them concerning about Jesus Christ accurately. I had to belabor all that because what you find next. Verse 26. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him speak, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. All of a sudden you say, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this is really weird, isn't it? Uh, Everything about the build-up seems, you know, just tremendous. Then all of a sudden, these tent makers here of humble quality and origin say, when they heard him speak, wow, he's, he's a gifted man, but he doesn't know all that he needs to know yet. We're tent makers and we know more than this. And so here they humbly and lovingly and gently took this brother aside and explained more accurately. 
That's not to say that what he was saying was wrong. Uh, the, the, the force of more accurately doesn't say, well, everything else he was saying before was false or corrupt. It's just that he needed something added to what he was saying. And we don't know what it was. And if you read through the commentaries at this point, your head feels like it's one of those whirlpools like this. It spins due to all the suggestions that people have, and none of us know what he lacked. Because Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe he didn't know about baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit instituted by Jesus Christ. Maybe he didn't know about that. We don't know. Maybe he didn't know that John the Baptist's ministry had expired. Maybe he didn't know that the Spirit of God had been poured out fully at Pentecost. Maybe he didn't know certain things that Jesus taught or, or did. Maybe he didn't know. We don't know. But the thing is, and this is what's important, is this man has been sent in the interim in the place of Paul to feed the sheep and to care for the sheep and to teach the sheep. And these brothers and sisters take him aside. And the implication is that having received that, he humbly accepted that instruction and he went on preaching the Word of God. And the reception by the church was spectacular because you can see in verse 27, they send him away with credentials tells you they must have really benefited from his ministry. And so one of the things here that you learn as you thread together all of these details about a man who is mysterious and mighty as Apollos, knowing only the baptism of John, but speaking the things concerning Jesus Christ accurately, is that what Christ has done, and this is what Luke is showing, when Paul is away, Christ brings Apollos and he takes care of his church. It may be in a seedling church. could barely even be called a church plant, probably. But even in the midst of it all, what was Jesus Christ doing for His church? He was supplying its need. He was raising up a ministry in the form of this eloquent, academically instructed, spiritually devout man for the training and the formation and the edification of His church. That brings us into the last scene of our text, and it's important to to the overall vision or picture that Luke gives because you've seen strengthening in Galatia. You've seen teaching in Ephesus. Now I want you to notice there's help for Corinth. Verse 27 and 28. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And the key verb here uh, is that word help. I want you to think, first of all, for those, uh, it was help for those in Corinth who had believed. Let's think about those people. First of all, you see he went to Achaia, which is just another way of speaking about Corinth. Uh, it's a it's a, it's a name that would um, identify a broader region there. We include Corinth and Athens and Delphi and Sparta and different Greek cities. But obviously uh, Corinth is in view here because the whole preceding uh, text here in Acts 18 is about Corinth. We know Apollos went to Corinth because when Paul is writing the Corinthians, he said to the Corinthians, I thank God that Apollos watered you. It's Corinth. Notice that the trip there was initiated by Apollos. It says when he wanted to go. The Greek here is emphatic, wanting, willing, wishing to go. 
probably heard about it through those quiet talks and conversations which he'd had with Priscilla and Aquila who had just come from there with Paul who were part of the, the founding and organization of the church plant. He probably learned about the needs of Corinth and how Paul had to leave and maybe they didn't have a full roster of ministers and how the Jews had been uh, criticizing them and pressing them and persecuting them, seeking to destroy the church there. Notice that as soon as he makes mention of his desire to go there, that the, the Ephesian church is full of support. It says the brethren encouraged him. So this is a ministry that was raised up from Ephesus and sent to Corinth for their help. The brethren encouraged him, and then they wrote a letter of commendation to the disciples to welcome him. You see, they had benefited from his fervent spirit and his mightiness in the Scriptures and his knowledge of the things of Jesus. And they said, I bet you those people in Corinth would love that too. But I want you to notice, people of God, who He helped, because this is where you really draw in the sense of the text into our soul for today. It says, when He arrived, He greatly helped those who had believed through grace. The key verb here is help. We've already said that. It means what it means, help. But the thing that is so important for you to note is he helped people who are already believers. This isn't a missionary activity. This is Apollos going to the church in Corinth. He's going to people who already believe, who don't need to be persuaded and convinced about the kingdom of God, who already believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And notice how they are described. Those who had believed by grace. They are people who already knew about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he went there to do what? Help them who had already believed. I want you to notice, people of God, how He helped them. Four. Does y'all Bible say that? Verse 28, first word, four. It is the explanation of what Luke meant when he said He helped those who had believed. Four. So notice now that Luke is giving the explanation for what he meant that he helped them. And notice now how it is that he helped them. He helped them through the ministry of the Word of God. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Remember, Corinth uh, was a seedbed of hostility to the church. He had all these intellectually sophisticated Jews who didn't want anything to do with this message of, of Christ. And you, you can imagine that after the Apostle Paul left, they, they loved nothing more than picking the scab off the wound of their doubt. Do you know what that's like to be around people who constantly are picking at your doubts? Who are constantly seeking to undermine your faith? Have you been around people like that who love nothing more than to make you squirm? To remind you constantly of why all of this seems just so implausible. 
and do so with sophistication and sneers and contempt and ridicule to the point that you feel like a worm. Why do I believe? I know I do, but it seems to not make any sense. All the smart people tell me this is all wrong. You starting to get the picture? These are battered people spiritually. And what did Apollos do? Oh, you got to love this. He powerfully refuted them. This is so vivid and so strong. The force of refute means to overwhelm. The force of refute means to overwhelm. We're talking decisive victory, not just TKO, but knockout. Going to sleep, overwhelm. And if that verb wasn't strong enough, which in the Greek it certainly is, Luke adds to it another powerful. He overpowered them to the point that they had to say, Uncle, he destroyed all of their arguments. He refuted all of their criticisms. He beat down all of their opposition. He took the very intellectual ground they were standing on and he sliced it out from under their feet. How did he do that? The preaching of the Word of God. By the preaching of the Word of God. Remember what you were told about this man of eloquence. He was mighty in the Scriptures, having been instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, speaking accurately the things of Jesus Christ. And this is what he does when he goes to Corinth. He takes up the Word of God, that thing he knows chapter and verse, that thing that he reveres, that thing which he knows is full of Christ. And he, he takes the Word and he breaks it down before the very eyes and ears of these Jewish opponents and he overwhelms them with the power of the Word of God. And the result is the Corinthians were helped. People of God, this is put here so that you will see what Jesus Christ was doing on an ordinary day in the life of the church for his people. In Syria, where the apostle was, he was ministering to the saints, caring for their souls spiritually with the word of God. When he went to Galatia and he saw all of his old friends that he helped win to Christ and establish into church plans in Pisidia and Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and Derby, he opened the word of God and he strengthened them through the ministry of the word. And here is when Apollos is parachuted into Ephesus, a mysterious man from Alexandria, a man who is of noble birth, of academic, uh, uh, impeccably academic credentials, fervent in spirit, mighty in the scriptures. He comes here to this fledgling church in Ephesus on an ordinary day and he goes into the synagogue and he speaks with boldness the word of God so that the people when they hear it are overwhelmed and comforted and strengthened and built up with truth and then he goes to Corinth to people who were weary and worn down and who are doubting and who are plagued and riddled by all kinds of reservations and concerns the only pastor they'd ever known was Paul and he was gone and they would pray for Jewish intellectuals who despised Jesus Christ and their faith and did nothing 
but harass and torment them. What is Jesus doing in an ordinary day in the life of the church? It's this. Raising up a ministry of the Word for the strength of His people. Strengthening them, teaching them, helping them. How do we bring this across the ages, people of God? How do we bring this across the ages from Antioch and Galatia, Phrygia, Ephesus and Corinth? Is it just a trip to the museum this morning? Got to thinking about that. I hope the Word's already been speaking to us, but consider this. Matthew Henry is dwelling on all these things, and one of the things that he drew out in his comments which really gripped me was this. Here's the point of connection between Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia, Phrygia and Antioch and all these other places and outposts where the gospel went to that we don't even know about. What is the connection across the centuries, the millennia, the time that has elapsed? What is the connection? The connection is this. As long as we are in this body, in this world, we are riddled with doubts. We are often tormented by shreds of unbelief. Our faith feels feeble often and weak, needing to be fulfilled and strengthened. The point of connection is we are just exactly like the people who were ministered to there. Which tells us this morning, people of God, that we're just like them. And they're just like us. And that means the prescription is still the same. Your faith is enough to justify you and save you. That's not doubt. Your faith is, is, is as strong in terms of your justification and salvation the moment you exercise it, as it will be into all eternity, you are as justified in that moment and saved as you ever will be. That's not the problem. The problem is how we still labor in this life with the sins and weakness and failings of our flesh. And we grow weak. Our resolve begins to dissipate. Doubts creep in. Our hearts become heavy. We become overwhelmed with discouragements of life and of providence. Sometimes we wake up and think that God doesn't even love us. Or know our name. Maybe that's not your life. Maybe it's all sunshiny days for you in the Christian faith. But if you're like these people, those who had things about their faith that still need amendment and correction and reinforcing and strengthening, there's good news. Because as Luke steps back from this vast picture of the developing church which starts over here in one corner of the world and stretches out like a line of a curtain to the other as far away as Corinth over thousands of miles and he shows churches in different locations and situations and circumstances and in every single one of them he shows us this morning how Jesus Christ cared for his church the way he did it it's through his word
do the ministry of the means by raising up a Paul, parachuting in an Apollos, by sending along humble servants like Priscilla and Aquila to help. Apollos dot his eyes across his T's a little bit. And he used that ministry to strengthen, to teach, and to help. And that's for us this morning. If you know your need of that reinforcement, that growth, that strengthening, that being reinforced, built up in your face that you may increase, well, the promise of the Word of God this morning is, is you receive this Word with humble meekness and faith and love, you lay it up in your heart. Receive it for what it really is, the Word of God, truth, the Spirit of God. Well, He'll bring the fruit of it forth in your lives. That's how Christ cares spiritually for His church. Father, we thank You this morning for uh, a beautiful picture of what You did in the past. But not just a picture to admire, but one to learn from that will settle our hearts and calm our souls and fill us with hope, knowing that you're not done with us yet, not by a long shot. You haven't forgotten us at all. That your word is there. Jesus Christ is ministering uh, through that word in his church to us this morning. So for all of us who came through those doors here this morning with faltering faith, who feel like uh, our hearts are heavy and a little bit weary and worn down from the criticisms of the world, the difficulties of our own life, hardships of providence. Lord, refresh our soul. May your word be this morning for us, strengthening. May it be for us, teaching. May it be for us, help. And through all these means, we would, experiencing that great soul care of Christ for his people, that through the repetitions of hearing that word, we indeed would grow up into our salvation. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.